You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Thank you for having me back to speak about a topic on which I'm very passionate about, which is diet and dermatology, but also how to translate the evidence into practice. And in terms of my disclosures, I am on the advisory board for Vichy Laboratories, and I am the author of a book for the general public on this topic. So I remember my background is that of contact dermatitis. So I ran the contact dermatitis clinic for a long time at the Baylor College of Medicine. And because of that, I saw so many patients with chronic, retractable, really severe dermatitis. And when you're dealing with dermatitis that impacts every aspect of your life, you are understandably desperate for solutions. And so I would hear about just so many different things that patients were trying. And a lot of that was skincare, prob uh, skincare changes, a lot of that was changing their environment, and a lot of that was doing elimination diets or trying supplements. And so I became interested in being able to answer these questions. And the first problem that I think arises in this area is what I call the Epsom salt problem. And I remember very specifically one of my patients, she was in her 30s, she was, you know, really into natural solutions to her problems, and she had a horrible facial dermatitis, really severe. And so one of the things she asked me was, what do you think about Epsom salts? Is that something I can use for my dermatitis? And I was saying, well, yeah, you know, Epsom salts um, can be helpful for dermatitis sometimes. And then she said, well, how much should I be consuming? And so I had thought, you know, of course, Epsom salt baths. Well, apparently there's a popular um, myth on the internet that you should be taking Epsom salts as supplements. And so that started me down this path. And so I call it the Epsom salt problems. And there's just so many misconceptions. And I think one of the major objectives for all of us as clinicians is to be able to address those myths and misconceptions regarding skin and diet. And I also want us to be able to speak with authority. And I, I was talking to one of my friends who said that in the olden days, he always used to kind of do this dance with patients where they would ask about, well, what do you think about a gluten-free diet for this? And he would say, well, you know, I'm not sure. Maybe you can talk to your nutritionist or you can talk to your primary care physician. Um, and he would always kind of do this dance about areas where maybe there wasn't as much evidence and he wasn't quite sure what to, what to say. And I decided, one of the reasons I really decided to take a deep dive into this topic of diet and dermatology was that I wanted us to be able to speak with authority. I didn't want to say, go speak to your nutritionist about what to do. I'm fine saying, you know, let's speak to your nutritionist about how to institute these dietary changes. But I wanted to be able to give them the evidence that was there and to be able to give them the level of evidence that I felt around a certain dietary approach. And the other challenge here is that some of the science here is very complex. There's a lot of nuances and there's a lot of uncertainties, but I still wanted it to be able to translate that into recommendations that were more straightforward and that patients could take action on. So that's the goal, and there's still a lot of questions in this area. But what I found is that in the last 10 to 15 years, there's a lot more research being done on diet and dermatology than ever before, and there actually are scientific recommendations or scientific studies that we can point our patients to. 
And the fact is that many or even most of your patients believe that their diet can impact their skin. And some of your patients are consuming either diets or supplements that their, nutrition, their herbalist has recommended or their homeopath or one of their friends who read it about it on a blog or a wellness activist who's writing about it on a blog. There are a lot of myths and misconceptions out there. And our patients may not be telling us about these, but if you start asking, you, you start to find out some interesting things that are out there. And the fact is that that doesn't belong to the wellness activist. You know, diet belongs to us. That's an our wellhouse, wheelhouse. Diet has always been a part of medicine. And in dermatology, we've known forever that um, diabetes affects wound healing. And we know that acanthosis nigricans is related to insulin resistance, which ultimately is related to diet. And so when I thought about how to approach the issue of the link between skin and diet, I decided ultimately to create a three-part framework. And so the framework that I use when I'm talking to patients and when I'm writing about this issue is comorbidities, triggers, and helpers. So I think the most important thing we have to talk to our patients about, and I'll use the example of psoriasis, is we need to talk about any potential risk for comorbidities. So if you have psoriasis, we know that you're at increased risk for cardiovascular disease. So our dietary recommendations first have to focus on reducing the risk for comorbidities. Second, are there any potential triggers? Are there any eating patterns or foods or nutrients or dietary compounds that have been demonstrated to act as triggers for skin disease? And finally, are there any helpers? So again, eating patterns, foods, compounds, nutrients that may potentially help in the treatment of skin disease. And one of the things I really emphasize to my patients is that in general, dietary recommendations should be considered adjunct therapy. So it's really unusual for this to be primary therapy. So it's almost always used in conjunction with our standard medical therapy. But dietary changes may be a very important adjunct therapy. And we need to think of it that way. Um, it's another tool for us in the treatment of skin disease. And the goal is to translate that research into recommendations that are specific and individualized and something that our patients can take action on. Now, there are several challenges when we're dealing with this. And the first is that our patients are used to pills. And nowadays what I'm seeing is that patients are also used to natural pills. So everybody wants a natural approach, and sometimes people are translating that natural approach to natural pills, i.e. supplements. And so it's very interesting to me how patients are asking, you know, I really want to just do a natural approach. What do you think about taking this supplement that contains 12,000% of the recommended daily value of vitamin B12? So that's not natural, that was made in a factory, but there is that real belief that supplements are a natural approach. Um, so that's one of the challenges. The other challenge when you're talking about dietary changes is that people really want it boiled down into one word, maybe two words. So that's why you're dealing with keto and paleo and um, two words, low fat, low carb, Atkins, fasting, intermittent fasting. Uh, so they really want it boiled down to one, maybe two words. And so sometimes it can be challenging to overcome that. But I have, you know, I have my own favorite two words. Um, 
anti-inflammatory, eat power. Uh, so I, I, I can sort of start with two words and then I can expand upon that. But those are challenges that you're going to experience. And I will um, start with an example which is diet and rosacea. So as dermatologists, we always talk about spicy foods and we talk about alcohol as rosacea triggers. So I became really interested in this, um, in this area when I had a patient with rosacea who came to me and she was stable for years on topical metronidazole, but one year she really developed a severe flare of papulopustular rosacea. And so I was discussing with her the use of oral antibiotics as, you know, doxycycline is a next step. And what she said was, you know what, I'd rather try a few other things first. Let me, let me think about it, let me get back to you. So she came back to see me in three months and she was really noticeably better. And I found that really interesting. You know, I said, oh, you look so, you know, you look so much better. Did you start the antibiotics? And what she said was, no, I stopped eating sour foods. And I thought that was really interesting because A, I'd never ever heard of that as a treatment for rosacea. But B, when I asked her more specifically, what do you mean by sour foods? What she said was that I stopped eating lemons and tomatoes. So very interesting, again, I hadn't thought of that as a rosacea trigger, but also I had never thought lemons are sour, but I hadn't thought of tomatoes as sour. So where is this coming from? Uh, so which of these foods are described as common rosacea triggers? If you survey patients, is it milk, strawberries, tomatoes, or eggs? Okay. So if you survey patients, we actually have Ah, there we go. We actually have very little research on the subject of food triggers for rosacea. This is almost one of the only surveys that is out there, and it was by the National Rosacea Society, where they talked to over 400 patients. And this is very interesting because about three-fourths had tried to alter their diet. And of that group, almost everybody thought that it had helped them reduce flares. And here were the food triggers in rosacea. So if you take a look at this list, uh, tomatoes are one of the big ones, 30%. But if you look at this list, what do they all have in common? You know, what's the connection between hot sauce and chocolate and citrus? The connection is that all can be considered vasodilators. And if you look at tomatoes, chocolate, and citrus, the one thing that those three foods have in common is that they contain a chemical compound called cinnamaldehyde. And cinnamaldehyde, I know about cinnamaldehyde because it's a compound that can cause allergic contact dermatitis. It's chemically related to fragrance additives. And when I have somebody who's allergic to fragrance and they're not getting better, sometimes I will have them avoid tomatoes, chocolate, citrus, and cinnamon because of the cinnamaldehyde. And we know that alcohol and hot beverages act to dilate our blood vessels, but interestingly enough, in laboratory and animal studies, capsaicin, which is found in spicy foods and peppers, and cinnamaldehyde 
are known to activate channels that are found on keratinocytes and blood vessels called transient receptor potential channels, TRP channels. When you activate those channels, they can activate neurogenic vasodilatation. So these compounds can be considered vasodilators. So we don't have clinical research on this. We're relying on sort of epidemiologic research. But if you were to devise a rosacea elimination diet, that's the list that I would go by. Avoiding alcohol, hot beverages, capsaicin, and cinnamaldehyde. And I'll show you my infographic on that in a moment. Another area of interest in rosacea is the theory of a gut-skin connection. And this is something that's just starting to be recognized. So when I said that there's a lot more evidence in the last 10 years than ever before, there are some really impressive population cohort studies that are being done in this area. This was one that looked at over close to 50,000 patients with rosacea. And what they found was that these patients had an increased risk of multiple GI conditions and diseases. So if you look at the GI comorbidities, it's increased for almost all of them, whether that's celiac disease or Crohn's disease or irritable bowel syndrome, which we're going to come back to in a later condition. And if you look at several studies in JAD, there was a group in Italy that found that multiple of their patients with rosacea had small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And when those patients were treated for SIBO, almost all of them had improvement of their rosacea. And then they did a three-year follow-up of those patients. And of those patients, the vast majority of them at three years remained clear. So there does appear to be a gut-skin rosacea, uh, a gut-skin connection in rosacea, and we still have to investigate that further. But that's led me to think that if we have our patients with rosacea and they report GI symptoms, I think that should be one of our review of systems questions, that if they report GI symptoms, I think that warrants a referral to a gastroenterologist for further evaluation. And comorbidities in rosacea, this is an area where we need more research. They may have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, but that's not strong evidence yet, but an area that I'm keeping an eye on further. So this is how I would describe a rosacea diet. I think this is the elimination. These are the foods that I would eliminate. And in terms of dietary measures to improve your gut health, we're going to address that in just a little bit. And I do want to mention that all of these infographics are for patients, and they're available on my website. And I really had a hard time finding one unified resource that linked diet and dermatology recommendations together. So I created my own. And this is the website. It's skinanddiet.com. And I have links to multiple peer-reviewed medical journal articles that I've published on this topic. Um, and there's a really extensive one on diet and rosacea on my website. And all of the infographics are on the website as well. So this is the way I would summarize it. You know, in terms of comorbidities, that's an area to consider. In terms of helpers, I think food dietary recommendations to support GI health. And then we've also, we've already talked about the triggers that I consider. So in terms of action items, I think we do need to be screening for GI comorbidities, at least just with our review of systems, but really think about that as a potential. And then I recommend that patients either keep a food diary 
or that they consider eliminating these triggers for eight weeks to see if it will help them. And then adding those foods back in one by one to see if they might be a trigger. Which brings me to atopic dermatitis, especially because I'm talking about this gut-skin link. And the question I would ask myself here is, is there a relationship between an impaired skin barrier and an impaired gut barrier? So which statement on food allergies and atopic dermatitis are true? That clinical reactions may take as long as 24 hours to occur, skin patch testing is recommended, serum RAST testing is recommended, or that the group most at risk are infants and children with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. Okay. So in order to address this question, I want to back up for a moment. And I want to talk about symbiotics. This was a really important meta-analysis where they took together multiple randomized clinical trials using symbiotics in the treatment of atopic dermatitis. And symbiotics are a combination of prebiotics with probiotics. And the question that I asked myself after I saw this study was, why would prebiotics combined with probiotics actually work to improve the skin? And what lessons are there here for our patients? So when you think about helpers in atopic dermatitis, there is a lot of, there's a lot of media interest in the use of probiotic supplements. But what I think is more important than probiotic supplements is to think about the gut microbiome. And so the microbes that live in our GI tract, there are trillions of them. They're bacteria, they're fungi, they're viruses, they're yeasts. These gut microbes are very important. And I think of them as policemen, as teachers, and as factory workers. They're policemen because these good gut microbes fight off the pathogenic bacteria. They are teachers because they help train our immune system. A large portion of our immune system is actually located in our GI tract. So these good gut microbes are very important in helping train that immune system to differentiate between pathogens and differentiate between normal environmental substances. And finally, they're factory workers because if you feed these good gut microbes well, they produce short-chain fatty acids. And these short-chain fatty acids have been shown to help improve the function of the skin barrier. For example, by reducing transepidermal water loss. So when you think about how to help your good gut microbes, it goes back to the basics. They love to eat fiber, especially the fiber that is naturally found in vegetables and whole grains and onions um, and certain other foods that are considered prebiotics. And in this meta-analysis, what they found was that symbiotics showed promise in the treatment of adults and children who were over the age of one year. But here's the kicker. And this is the reason I find it very hard to recommend a particular probiotic supplement. There were so many differences in the study design here. They used different bacterial strains. They used different dosages. They used different duration of treatment. And even the prebiotics that they used were different. 
And then the really important point here is that there was a lot of variability in individual response. So some patients had great responses to these supplements, and other patients didn't respond at all. So there are a lot of questions that remain before I could safely recommend, you know, take this particular supplement. What I do think we can safely recommend, though, is dietary measures where we're thinking about our gut health. And one of the reasons I became interested in the whole gut-skin access is because I started to notice that my patients who were being referred to me for contact dermatitis, that a lot of them reported irritable bowel syndrome. And now what I believe is that there's an epidemic of irritable bowel syndrome that's, that's coming up. And I think that's why so many people are talking about gluten-free diets. They're talking about gut health because there's a lot of gut dysbiosis, meaning there's a lot of imbalance between the good gut microbes and the poor gut microbes. And it's believed that that may even be playing a role in this alarming rise of food allergies in children because we're not training our immune system to be able to properly differentiate. So I think we can all safely recommend measures to support gut health. And they've done studies where if you switch from a traditional whole foods-based diet to a Western diet that's heavy in added sugars and heavy in refined carbohydrates, that within 24 hours, you start to see changes in your gut microbiome. Within 24 hours, you start to have a loss of some of these good gut microbes. So it's an area that I think we can um, start talking to our patients about. And in terms of probiotic foods, foods that contain live active cultures are considered probiotic foods, and they may also help support gut health. And those are, you know, they're getting so popular nowadays, but yogurt and kefir and miso um, and kimchi and sauerkraut may serve as natural probiotics. And then I mentioned about prebiotic foods. And along the same lines of foods impacting our gut barrier, or our skin barrier, they've also had multiple studies where polyunsaturated fatty acids and monounsaturated fatty acids actually helping to reduce transepidermal water loss. And so I mentioned, you know, this particular study looked at flaxseed oil, but there have been other studies that have looked at things such as omega-3 fatty acids, olive oil, um, hemp seed oil. So it is believed that having a nice proportion of healthy fats in your diet may also impact the skin barrier. And so if I was talking about helpers for patients with atopic dermatitis, I would talk about prebiotic foods, probiotic foods, and healthy fats. And we have to talk about triggers. And this is an area that's actually very complex. We know that atopic dermatitis and food allergies are strongly correlated. The overall estimated prevalence has ranged widely depending on what populations you're looking at. It may be anywhere from 20% to 80%. Bottom line, we know that a lot of our patients with eczema do have food allergies, but do those food allergies exacerbate their skin inflammation? That's a much more complex question. Clearly plays a role in some patients. However, the prevalence is unknown. But studies do indicate that those most likely to be impacted are infants and children with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. So if I had a five-year-old with severe eczema and the mom was asking about food allergies playing a role, I would take that seriously. If you had your adult who 
you know, has had eczema for a few years and it's pretty mild and they're really worried about food allergies, far, far less likely. So populations differ. But there is an important series of studies that were done that I don't think ever received enough press, even though they were done a while ago. And these are called late eczematous reactions to food. And when you think about food allergies, there's actually a lot of different types of food allergies. The media or the public tends to think about one type, which is your type one IgE-mediated immediate type food allergy. You eat peanuts, and you get hives almost immediately. Or you eat peanuts and after two hours your lips blow up. That's type one. And most patients can figure that out because there's not much of a delay. But there's actually many randomized control trials that have looked at what's known as late eczematous reactions. Where somebody eats eggs and up to 48 hours later they may see a flare of their eczema. And so when you're talking about keeping a food diary, an important point is that you're tracking your foods, but you're also tracking the severity of your eczema up to 48 hours later. So to say that a different way, if you came to me with, and you said, I woke up this morning and my eczema is so much worse, do you think it's related to something I ate last night? I would say I really think you need to look back in your food diary for 48 hours you know, to see if there's anything there. And the same foods that are the common ones for type 1 allergy are also the same for late eczematous reactions. And so that is your seafood, your nuts, your eggs, your milk, your wheat, and your soy. So those are the big six ones. If a parent asked me, do you think I should put my child on a six food elimination diet? Never. Um, that's not recommended by anybody. But if I had an adult who said, I think gluten might be a trigger, what do you think? If it lines up with your food diary and you as an adult want to eliminate it for eight weeks and see what happens, I think that's fine. Now, if you're a child and you want to eliminate a single food, you still have to be careful. I think we've all seen those reports of children who went from cow's milk to rice milk and they developed kwashiorkor. Um, and now we also have to be worried if you take away a particular food from a child, their immune system may no longer recognize it as safe. That's what we see happening with peanut allergy, um, but there's a concern that if you eliminate milk or wheat or all of those that you might also lose that immune tolerance. So for children who are suspecting it, it's really important to do food challenges by your pediatric allergist. And um, I did not mention this last one. Oh. The other type of food allergy that I think about is systemic contact dermatitis, and that's something where I can test via patch testing, and the big triggers are the ones that I mentioned. If you're allergic to fragrance additives, some of those patients will react to tomatoes, to cinnamon, to citrus. So that's another example of a food allergy. And I will mention one thing about RAST testing, because some of your patients might have gone to their pediatrician, they might have gotten RAST testing done, like serum RAST testing, or they might have gotten skin prick testing. It's well known that there is a high rate of false positive results with serum RAS testing and with print testing. So we don't recommend, and I, you know, one of the reasons this is so important to me is because I've had friends come in and they've told me, you know, 
I eliminated these 20 foods because that's what showed up on my serum testing. And so I think it's really important that you take those results as a starting point, and then it's recommended that those patients undergo food challenge placebo control testing in a doctor's office to have confirmation before you eliminate 20 foods. Just educate your patients that there's a lot of false positives with those kind of tests. I want to highlight this study because I'm still not sure, you know, but I think it's something that we need to keep an eye out on. Just reported a year ago, medical records of patients with atopic dermatitis, close to 400,000 patients, and they were compared to over a million matched controls. The more severe your atopic dermatitis, the higher your risk of stroke, unstable angina, and cardiovascular death. I still consider this preliminary, but if I had a patient with severe atopic dermatitis, that's somebody I would think about as possibly being at increased risk for systemic comorbidities. This is an area that we're going to see more of. So, I think the summary is to think about helpers, specifically think about foods that support good gut health. And for triggers, think about those three main types of allergies. And remember that some of those may be immediate, but delayed eczematous reactions may take up to 48 hours. Same thing with systemic contact dermatitis, may take up to 48 hours. Um, I do have a handout on my website about the role of food allergies in eczema because it's such a complex area to explain to patients. So I have a handout that I made that you're welcome to use. So talking about acne now, which dietary strategy may be most helpful for patients with acne? Should they reduce their intake of saturated fats, added sugars, or should they take vitamin B12 supplements, or should they reduce their intake of meat? Country. And that's the one that I recommend, is to reduce your intake of added sugars. I thought this was a great study. It was a while ago. It was published in JAD, but for some reason it didn't come to my consciousness until I started really investigating the link between diet and dermatology. And this is a randomized controlled trial. 43 male patients, 12 weeks of a particular intervention, investigator blinded. At the end of the 12 weeks, the intervention group had a greater decrease in total lesion counts, they had a reduction in their free androgen index, and they had an increase in a binding protein for insulin-like growth factor one. When they've done later studies of the exact same intervention, they've actually seen less skin sebum, and they've even done skin biopsies, and they've shown less skin inflammation, and they've even shown smaller sebaceous glands. No side effects, well, minimal side effects, but no lab monitoring needed and low cost, and you don't even need to do any pre-authorizations. And that's because it's a low glycemic index diet. And a low glycemic index diet is basically a focus on carbohydrates that do not raise blood glucose levels as quickly. So it's a focus on the quality of the carbohydrates that you're consuming, as well as the quantity of carbohydrates that you're consuming. And in this particular study, it was not a low-carb diet. It was a normal-carb diet. But it was a focus on, let's say, changing from white bread to wheat, whole wheat bread, and changing from a refined carbohydrate to maybe a protein source. It was not low carb. Um, and here it was. It was 45% low glycemic index carbs. 
And here's the JAD reference, and here's some of the later studies. But what do our patients believe when we ask them? So this was a survey study that we did in the Baylor Clinic, and we asked our patients, what foods do you think might make acne worse? Well, actually, first we asked, do you think foods make acne worse? And almost everybody said yes. And this was a highly educated population. Every single one, I believe, was college educated. But if you look at this list, 53% thought it was the chocolate, and um, a lot of people, the biggest percentage was 71% that thought it was the fried or the greasy foods, which really kind of makes intuitive sense because you're eating fried greasy foods and then you have more grease on your skin. I can understand why that would be a link. But only 16% thought that it was sugar. So it's not the chocolate per se, it's the sugar that's in the chocolate. And the reason that's so important is because when patients are eliminating chocolate, they may not be thinking about their, um, they may not be thinking about their sweetened iced tea or their sports drinks or their sweetened coffee drinks. And the fried greasy foods, it's probably the fact that a lot of those are high glycemic index foods. So it's really important that we educate our patients that it's not just the grease, it's not just the chocolate, it's those refined carbohydrates and those sugars. The role of dairy is unclear. There are epidemiologic studies that suggest it may play a role in some individuals. My personal belief is that it does play a role in some people, and it doesn't play a role in other people at all. I would, however, tell all of my acne patients to stop taking whey protein supplements. Multiple case series now that that's been a trigger. And in some cases, these are patients who had severe nodulocystic acne and um, did not respond to treatment until they stopped those whey protein supplements. I think that's one that we can recommend to all of our patients. Guidelines of care, you know, do talk about the high glycemic index diets. So when you're counseling your patients, I think it's important to provide information, but for teenagers especially, you have to consider feasibility. Um, you know, maybe they can't change a lot, but I think the one thing they could change is at least looking at their beverages. I think that's an easy one to attack. But I also would emphasize to every patient, because I would hate to see anybody blamed for their acne. So I would emphasize that this is only one aspect of treatment. It is an adjunct to treatment. We are still going to prescribe treatment, but this is something that you can do yourself and it is completely under your control. And the reason you have acne is not just because you are not eating well, it's a number of factors ranging from genetics to hormonal changes, but if this is one factor that might play a role, it's something to consider. So helpers, um, low glycemic index diet, triggers, stop the whey protein supplements. There's actually some really interesting research um, that's suggestive out there. The role of zinc, interesting. Um, Omega-3 fatty acids, high fiber foods, probiotics, antioxidants. These are all being studied right now. So I think a diet that emphasizes healthy foods is probably going to help with inflammation of acne as well. So here are some action items. And by the way, the action items are all on my handout, and I'll show you the specific one. Um, but this is an infographic that I would keep, that I would give to my patient about food triggers, talking about some of those that they can watch out for. And so the last condition that I want to talk about is diet and psoriasis. And which of these adjunct therapies has been shown to improve POSSE scores? Is it a tryptophan-rich diet? 
Is it weight loss in those who are overweight or obese? Or is it selenium supplements or zinc supplements? Yes. And which of the following is true? Should all of our patients with psoriasis be on a gluten-free diet, or only those who have celiac disease, or anyone with serum antibodies to gluten proteins, or do we never recommend a gluten-free diet? So we're going to talk about the role of gluten in psoriasis a little bit further. So when we're talking about an adjunct therapy for psoriasis, these were 60 patients who were overweight or obese and all continued their baseline psoriasis treatment, every single one. And this was a randomized control trial, so there was one arm that was an intervention group. And at 16 weeks, the group in the intervention had a greater reduction in POSSE scores, psoriasis area and severity index score, as well as dermatology-related quality of life. And it was basically a low-calorie diet that resulted in weight loss. Pretty impressive weight loss, 15 kilograms, but these were all patients who were overweight or obese to begin with. And this was a quote from one of the studies that I thought was a really wonderful idea, which is that modifying diet is something that patient, patients with psoriasis are frustrated. It's a severe disease, or it has a severe impact on many patients. But here they can modify their diet, and that's something that's accessible to anybody, and it's self-empowering. And a lot of patients are eager to embrace something that they can do themselves. And the other thing that a lot of our psoriasis patients are becoming aware of is the fact that psoriasis is associated with the metabolic comorbidities and cardiovascular disease. And so our patients are eager to reduce their risk of these comorbid conditions. So the first question I would ask is, can we play a role in protecting our patients with psoriasis? And there have now been multiple studies on the comorbid diseases that we have seen in psoriasis. They have a higher prevalence of multiple comorbidities, ranging from diabetes to hypertension to dyslipidemia to cardiovascular disease. And again, these are large studies. This is over 130,000 patients with psoriasis, matched with over half a million controls. And they looked at their risk for myocardial infarction. And the patients with psoriasis had an increased relative risk for MI. And this is even after they adjusted for those other risk factors. So we do believe that there is something inherent to psoriasis, likely the fact that it appears to be a systemic inflammatory state that is putting them at risk for heart disease. And we know that if you're talking about your risk for heart disease, the first thing you talk about is dietary change. That is a foundation of reducing your risk for diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease. Your first step is not taking a pill. Your first step is looking at what you're doing in terms of your diet. And this was, um, it's not just well, it's not just myocardial infarction, it's also stroke and cardiovascular mortality. And that risk is increased the more severe the skin disease. And I'm going to come back to that idea in just a little bit. So we know there's actually been a lot of studies showing that diets such as the DASH diet have our evidence-based risk reduction strategies for hypertension. The Mediterranean diet and similar diets are effective in reducing the risk of cardiovascular disease. So that's something that you could start 
for recommending your for your patients with psoriasis. But a related question is something that I find really interesting, which is can dietary changes reduce the findings of skin inflammation? And this was a recent study last year in the JAD, Dietary Interventions in Psoriasis. They looked at 55 studies meeting the inclusion criteria, and they strongly recommended dietary weight reduction in overweight and obese patients with psoriasis. We're going to come to the gluten-free diet in a minute, and that was a weak recommendation. And when you look at lifestyle intervention via diet or weight loss, you have a greater improvement in POSSE scores. And what about this second question, which is if you have a patient, let's say, on a TNF-alpha inhibitor, and you use dietary change as an adjunct treatment, does that impact the effectiveness of your treatment? And Here's one study that looked at this question with cyclosporin. So again, randomized control trial, investigator blinded. And at six months, the percent of subjects achieving a POSSE 75 much higher when you added the adjunct treatment as opposed to the cyclosporin alone. And they've shown that now for other studies. Um, so for example, in patients treated with etanercept. Adding this as an adjunct therapy does seem to improve your response to treatment. But here is the billion dollar question. How does one achieve a weight loss goal of 7%? And I want to point you to the diabetes prevention program. How many of you have ever heard or ever used the diabetes, a certified diabetes prevention program for your patients? No. So there is not a lot of awareness among clinicians yet of certified diabetes prevention programs. And I'm going to, um, I'm creating a handout right now about certified DPPs to put on my website. But if you just Google it, this is a program that was developed by the CDC. And this is a one year long lifestyle intervention program. If you have pre-diabetes, so this is not for patients with diabetes, but if you have pre-diabetes, then you qualify to enter into one of these certified programs. And once you enter into that program, you get 25 different sessions with a lifestyle coach. At the beginning, you meet with them almost once a week, but the last six months of the program, you're meeting with them just once a month. And they talk about nutritional changes, but they also talk about the impact of lifestyle stress reduction exercise. But most importantly for me, and this is something that I've always struggled with in the, you know, in the setting of a short doctor visit, how do you actually talk to people about their obstacles to change? I mean, it's not that people don't want to lose weight, it's that there are a lot of obstacles in their life that make it a lot more challenging. So I love the idea that they are meeting with a lifestyle coach in a group over the span of one year to help them identify ways to change their behavior and overcome obstacles. And this is the best part of this program is that last year in 2018, Medicare now covers the cost of this program. If you have a patient with Medicare and they have pre-diabetes, the cost is entirely covered. Here's the second best part of this. Here's the second part of the program that I really like. I um, looked into our YMCA program. It's offered at our YMCA. It's $430 if you don't have any insurance at all, if you're paying out of pocket. We're starting to see that other insurance companies are starting to think about coverage. Some employers provide coverage. And here's the third thing that I really like about these programs. If you go to the CDC's website, they have multiple providers now who will provide this via telehealth. And so I 
You can only become certified as a diabetes prevention program if you are able to achieve these goals in a significant percentage of patients who've gone through your program. So you can't just say that you're a, a DPP. You have to go through a process and you have to show that patients going through your program are achieving these goals. And one of the biggest goals in the program is a five to 7% weight loss at the end of that one year. You don't get certified until a significant percentage of your patients achieve that weight loss goal. And the program, large randomized controlled trials, 58% reduction in the progression of pre-diabetes to diabetes. And so these are very effective programs. So the third point that I really like about it is if you go to the CDC website, there are a bunch of telehealth programs who are now, um, who are now certified to provide this. So I just got one of my friends to sign up for one of those programs, Fruit Street. I don't have any conflict there, but um, I got one of my friends to sign up for this telehealth program, so I'm going to see how it works over the next year, you know, what he thinks about it. But I think these are options that we can provide to our patients, and I think these should be considered an adjunct therapy. Um, so average weight loss, and there's a database where you can plug in your zip code and you can see what programs are close to you. And so when I'm thinking about my patient who I'm thinking about starting on a biologic, and we're thinking about TB testing, I think all of us should also be ordering a hemoglobin A1C. Um, I think any patient with psoriasis severe enough to warrant a biologic, I think we can order one single test. It's a blood test. It doesn't even have to be a fasting test. It's a hemoglobin A1C. That one test can be used to make a diagnosis of either prediabetes or diabetes. And if you have that screening test and it's a prediabetic person, you can then refer them to a program. So I think that should be that should become standard of care as we're thinking about prescribing biologics. And what I'd love to see um, with industry is even if they might consider um, providing coverage for certified DPPs in patients who are starting biologic therapy. I'm thinking ahead a little bit, but this is something that's so important for our patients. We all know about the complications of diabetes, so that's why I really wanted to talk about it in this, um, in this section. And on to what our, but our patients are often not asking about diabetes risk reduction. What our patients are often asking about is, should I go gluten-free? And if you Google diet for psoriasis, almost everybody that's not a health-related website is going to say that you need to go gluten-free. And that's because there are multiple case reports of individuals with celiac disease and psoriasis who have gone on a gluten-free diet and their psoriasis has resolved. So we do know that patients with psoriasis are at increased risk for celiac disease, probably twofold higher risk. And that's probably where those case reports are coming from. So I think we take it very seriously. If somebody's reporting GI, um, GI symptoms, that they do get referred to GI. But there are small studies that indicate that even if you don't have celiac disease, you may benefit from a gluten-free diet if you test positive for gluten antibodies. These are small studies, we need more research, but based on these studies, I actually feel comfortable if somebody tells me that they, um, or if I see that they have a positive serum gluten antibody, I feel comfortable saying that I think you can try a gluten-free diet for the next eight weeks and see what happens, or the next 12 weeks, rather. So this was a small study that found that if you had antibodies to gliadin, and you went on a gluten-free diet, this is before and this is after three months of a gluten-free diet. These patients actually did have improvement in their POSI scores after three months. 
But if you did not have gluten antibodies, a gluten-free diet didn't do anything for you. So more research needed, but I would take it seriously um, if somebody suggested that they have symptoms, that I would recommend serum testing and I would recommend referral to GI. And here are the statistics. Very small study, but very interesting. So I want to end with some food for thought. And we know in psoriasis that biologic therapies such as TNF-alpha inhibitors have really, oh, excuse me, have really changed the landscape of psoriasis treatment. But when you think about this, are there any other ways to reduce TNF-alpha levels? And when I was listening to Dr. Rosen's lecture yesterday, I hadn't seen that study about how application of lipid-rich moisturizers could actually reduce serum markers of inflammation. And I think as we progress in this area, we're going to find that there are other ways to reduce serum markers of inflammation. And one of my questions is, can dietary change reduce systemic inflammation? And I think if I was designing a study to look at this, I would start with, let's say, a dietary pattern. So I would put somebody on the DASH diet, and I would control all other variables. And then I would measure a reproducible outcome. So I would look at a TNF-alpha level before they went on the DASH diet, and then I would look at it three months later. So that's how I would design the diet. What I found out is that these studies have been done, and they haven't just been done once or twice. They have been done hundreds of times. And this was a really interesting study, and if you've never um, heard about the Dietary Inflammatory Index, I think this is a great one to just look up and read. It's very interesting. These researchers looked at over 1,900 studies, and what they looked at was these before and after patterns. And they studied the effects of foods and nutrients on six major biomarkers of inflammation, one of which was tumor necrosis factor alpha. Another one was C-reactive protein. And if you increase levels of those, it was considered pro-inflammatory. If you increase TNF-alpha, that was pro-inflammatory. And what they found was that certain foods and macro and micronutrients and phytonutrients and eating patterns could be considered anti-inflammatory. And I love looking at this list because a lot of these are foods that we think of as anti-inflammatory. Turmeric, green tea, but also things that are really common like garlic and onion. But if you look at the macro and micronutrients, a lot of people talk about specific nutrients, but fiber was the most anti-inflammatory macronutrient out there. You know, people talk about protein, but fiber is what's anti-inflammatory. And um, I also want to think about the psoriasis and obesity studies. If you look at obesity, it is considered a pro-inflammatory state. It increases levels of interleukin-17 and interleukin-23. And think about those particular interleukins. You know, when you think about all of these amazing advances in the landscape of biologic therapy of psoriasis, you start to see some of these interleukins. So obesity increases levels of these um, of these interleukins, but that also increases synthesis of cytokines, and adipocytes produce certain cytokines, including tumor necrosis factor alpha. So that may be one of the links between why reducing obesity might be helpful in reducing the skin inflammation of psoriasis. All food for thought, but I think very interesting. So the summary is to think about, the most important part is to think about reducing that risk of comorbidities, but also think about helpers as weight loss is an adjunct therapy. And 
one of the tools we now have in our toolbox is certified diabetes prevention programs, which I am starting to think of as not just diabetes prevention, but weight loss programs as well. And then triggers, they do have an increased risk of celiac disease. So here are some action items. I'll point you to number four, which is that if you look at some of the recommendations on how to screen for diabetes, everybody over the age of 45 that's in your office should have already been screened for diabetes. We know a lot of our patients, they don't necessarily have a primary care physician, but it's important to look at risk factors for diabetes. And now they're recommending that everybody over the age of 45, whether you are overweight or not, should at least be screened for at least once um, as a baseline, screened with an easy test as a hemoglobin A1C. So some facts and myths about diet for psoriasis. And I'm just going to um, mention about diet and skin aging, that we know that diabetes impairs wound healing, but does it impact collagen in other ways? We actually have a lot of, um, or not a lot, we have several really interesting studies showing that some elderly individuals who eat a healthy diet actually appear younger, even after controlling for other variables. And we also know that you can increase an individual's minimal erythema dose with certain dietary compounds. And which of these processes has a major impact on skin aging? Is it hydrolysis, fermentation, catabolism, or glycation? Oh, sorry, it's glycation. So we know that UV radiation exposure causes a whole cascade of events. And you can have direct damage to DNA, and you can have to damage to proteins, but you can also trigger free radicals, and those can cause additional damage to the skin. And that can also trigger inflammatory pathways. And we know the clinical effects that that results in, wrinkles, textural changes, pigmentary changes. But one key point I want to leave you with is that each of the steps in these pathways can be impacted by diet, whether that's a dietary pattern, a food, a nutrient, or a compound. And here are some of the studies showing that if you eat a healthier diet, you actually have a younger appearance. Fewer wrinkles in women. If you eat more red meat and snacks, you have more facial wrinkles. If you are non-diabetic, but you have higher glucose levels, even after taking into account other factors, you do have a higher estimated age as your, blood, as your blood glucose levels increase. And the three major processes that age the skin are oxidation, major and minor inflammation, and glycation. And if you think about this OMG, and if you think about it as a house, you know, and here's back to the triggers and the helpers, promote aging of the skin and, sorry, I can't go backwards here. When you think about your house, if you think about hail raining down on your house and causing damage to your roof, that's free radical damage from oxidation. And then if you think about, if you have a tiny little leak in your roof, and you hire a repair person, and by the time they get done, you've got this giant hole in your roof, that's inflammation. It's your repair processes gone haywire. And then if you think about glycation, it's almost like when you get termites in the walls of your house, and the walls of your house start sagging, 
That's equivalent to advanced glycation end products causing damage to the collagen that's holding up the roof, that's holding up the walls of your house. That's oxidation, inflammation, and glycation. That's the way I think about it. And when you think about increasing a person's minimal erythema dose, some dietary antioxidants can actually limit the cellular damage that's induced by UV radiation. And I mentioned this in my supplements talk. There are some really interesting studies about tomato paste, like the kind that you can buy in the grocery store and just eat, that ingesting tomato paste daily for 12 weeks actually improved patients' minimal erythema dose. And that's because dietary antioxidants help to neutralize free radicals, but they're always being used up, so you have to replenish them via dietary sources. And here are just some of the antioxidants that have been shown to combat photoaging in laboratory studies. And that's whether that's compounds in tomatoes, but also raspberries, turmeric, onions, grapes, green tea. Really fascinating body of literature looking at these in laboratory and animal studies. Um, and this was a great reference about oral photoprotection, where they really summarized that it wasn't just visible erythema. A lot of these studies have looked at markers of DNA damage, oxidative stress, and inflammation. And one point I want to leave you with is that antioxidants should be at physiologic doses, which are the doses found in whole foods. We now have multiple studies that have shown that if you take antioxidant supplements and you get these really high doses, they can actually become pro-oxidant. And this was an article I wrote where it first got me started thinking about this whole idea of the Goldilocks principle, where you don't want too little, but you also don't want too much. And there have actually been studies where um, there was one nice study that was done where they gave patients a supplement pill that contained vitamin C, vitamin E, beta carotene, zinc, and selenium, and they thought it would reduce their risk of non-melanoma skin cancer, but they had to stop the study because after a median of 7.5 years, women who took that supplement actually had higher rates of skin cancer. So what we believe is that if you take high doses of antioxidants, such as found in supplements, it may actually backfire. And glycation, I call it sugar sag. If you start to have hyperglycemia, that excess sugar causes the creation of new compounds called advanced glycation end products, and they start to cause collagen cross-linking. And if you think of collagen like a net, it's really flexible and it bounces back. But if you start to get caramel in there and really tangle that net up, it loses elasticity. So that's why we believe that hyperglycemia and diabetes is linked to loss of skin elasticity and an impairment of wound healing. So you want to avoid sugar spikes. It's also important when you're counseling your patients that everybody's different. So the same dose of sugar, people may respond to quite differently. So you really need to think about your population. And you can also eat preformed ages, especially browned meats that are broiled or grilled or fried. One of the highest levels of ages is found in bacon. Watch out, yeah, bacon, there it is. That very top one, watch out for that. So that's how I would approach dietary approaches to prevent aging of the skin. You want to think about foods that are rich in 
antioxidants naturally. You want to think about anti-inflammatory foods. And you want to think about strategies to reduce blood glucose levels and strategies to avoid eating too many ages. So in terms of foods, I don't think we need to do the post-test, but in terms of foods that are common rosacea triggers, um, it was tomatoes. And I, um, oh, let's see if I can go back. Oh, I um, did want to end with my um, slide where I just highlighted a few resources. Uh, or basically, if you're interested in any of my infographics, it's skinanddiet.com slash infographics. Um, and I have my action items that I had on the slides. Oh, thank you. I had my action items that I had on the slides on skinanddiet.com slash references. So I linked to a lot of the references that I've mentioned in this talk on that one web page. So I don't actually have a particular diet that I think is the best. I think, though, that if I had to narrow it down to two words, I would say either anti-inflammatory, because dietary patterns that are anti-inflammatory are also going to be naturally rich in antioxidants and naturally low in added sugars and refined carbohydrates. The other two words I might use would be eat power. Eat foods that are naturally rich in powerful nutrients. And I think you could accomplish that with a Mediterranean diet, a DASH diet, a MIND diet, or I'm really interested in heritage diets, traditional diets that are really focused on whole foods because they come from a time when processed foods did not exist. So it's an emphasis on fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds. I definitely love spices and herbs because some of the most concentrated sources of antioxidants and anti-inflammatory abilities are spices and herbs. And there's also some really interesting data that the compounds in spices and herbs are also anti-glycation. So I really like that category. And then fermented foods, I think, are also something that you could add to your diet, and certainly less processed foods, less sugar, and less refined carbohydrates. So it all comes down to the broccoli. <laughs> so thank you for your attention. The overall performance of the speaker. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? No? No questions? No questions? All right. Oh, sure. You know what, that's a great question, and I have not thought about that question. Sorry. No, no, that's a great question. I don't know. I think you could probably, if they were 45 and above, you know, I think there would be an ICD-10 code for screening. 
The other recommendations for diabetes screening are if you are overweight or obese, and if you have a history of gestational diabetes, or if you are in an ethnic group that is considered at higher risk, which is basically any ethnic group that's not Caucasian, um, is considered at higher risk. And then if you have a family history. So I think um, if you look for some of those other risk factors, but I'm sorry, I don't know the exact code, but thanks for bringing that up. I'm gonna think about that now. <laughs> All right, thank you very much. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.